Heavenly Father, we do praise you for your word. Like Daniel, we live in a hostile world. We live in a world that opposes your word, that hates your son, and hates the life that you came to die for us to live. Father, we pray that you would teach us how to live in that hostile world, how to be known as yours, and how to speak as yours. In your world, we pray. Amen. Well, we've heard about William Wilberforce, uh, we've heard about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now I want to introduce, start off by introducing you to uh, one of my church history heroes. His name is John Lang, there he is. Um, he was born in 1879 into uh, a family construction business. Um, he built power stations, he built the UK's first freeway, he built housing estates, he built factories, office blocks, he even built Coventry Cathedral. Um, during his life, he increased the size of the family business 1,600 times from when he inherited it. Massive, massive achievement. He died in 1978, the year that I was born. He died as Sir John Lang. Um, he obviously achieved a lot. He was the head of a multi-million pound uh, construction empire. But the thing about John Lang is that when he died... He died with just £371 in his accounts. Uh, He didn't do what I would do if I took hold of the reins of a construction company and run it into the ground uh, because I haven't got a clue about how to run a business. Um, he He didn't do that. He didn't flitter his money away on booze and cars and holidays. No, he died with £371 in his account because at the age of 30, he resolved to live a gospel-centered life. He resolved to put God at the center of his life and uh, at the center of his business, to make God's business his business. And so he formed his business around God's business of telling the world about Jesus Christ crucified. So he did a number of different things. Uh, One of the significant things that he did, why he died with £371 in his account, is that he put a financial plan in place so that as his personal income increased, uh, the the amount of money that he spent on himself uh, didn't increase. So his generosity could increase and his personal wealth couldn't increase. Uh, So he lived this extraordinary generous life. He was generous to his staff. He was ridiculously generous to his clients, keeping his word at great cost uh, to himself. And he was generous to the church. He was generous for the gospel. Um, Lang funded the InterVarsity Fellowship. That's a major gospel outreach program through the universities in the UK. He funded the London Bible College and Tyndale House, these two big theological institutes. Uh, He built Coventry Cathedral uh, for no profit whatsoever and then stuck a massive check into the pot when they had a whip round for the hard costs to build that thing. Many people came to know Jesus uh, because of John Lang's gospel-centered life. Uh, Many of the influential Christians whose books we read uh, from the UK and the world around uh, became Christians because of the hand and generosity of John Lang's gospel-centered life. Now the life that John Lang lived, it, it follows the model that is laid down for us 
in 1 Corinthians 9. It's a model laid, by down, laid down by the Apostle Paul for the Corinthian Christians. This gospel-centered life. It's laid down for the Corinthian Christians. And it's laid down for us. Uh, Paul gives you and I uh, the charge to live the gospel-centered life. Now we've been uh, working our way through 1 Corinthians and this section of the letter that we're in runs from chapter 8 through to chapter 11 verse 1 and Paul sums up this gospel-centered life at the end of the section in chapter 10 verse 31. He says this, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for God's glory. Therefore, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for God's glory. In chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. That's a massive statement, isn't it? I think it's the theme verse of the book, really, uh, that we do everything for the glory of God. It's a massive statement about the gospel-centered life. Uh, but it also says that it's costly. To do everything for the glory of God is costly. And 1 Corinthians 9 says that if you want to live the gospel-centered life, if you want to make an impact in this world for Jesus, if you want to see people saved from hell for a relationship with God for eternity, then it will cost you. It will be hard work. It will mean great sacrifice. It costs Paul and it costs Jesus. But 1 Corinthians 9 says that it will be worth it, that the gospel-centered life is the most awesome, joy-filled life we could live, and it will be worth it. I've got three points uh, from the Apostle Paul's example. Do you notice that he talks a lot about himself in this chapter? So uh, three points to inspire us to imitate the Apostle Paul and so live uh, these gospel-centered lives. Three points are Paul's price, Paul's passion, and Paul's prize. Paul's price, Paul's passion, and Paul's prize. So Paul's price. That's verses 1 to 18. And and we get in these verses uh, Paul describing the great price that he has paid to live this gospel-centered life so that the Corinthian Christians could hear about Jesus. We need to remember that Paul is uh, writing this section in response to the the issues the Corinthians were having over whether they could eat meat uh, sacrifice to uh, idols. Uh, last week we saw that Paul said, we heard that Paul said, they have every right to eat this idol meat. Idols are nothing. There's only one God that they are free in Christ to eat this meat. They have the right and they are free. But Paul says you, that they are to consider and we are to consider how we use our rights and our freedom uh, for the salvation of others. And so in chapter 9, what Paul does is he puts himself up as an example, as giving up his right to wages uh, for preaching the gospel, so that the Corinthians could hear about Jesus and be saved. See how it's working? He's saying, uh, you, you're right to eat idle meat, but uh, you should give up that right for the salvation of others, just like I have the right to be paid for preaching the gospel to you, Corinthians. I've given up that right so that you would be saved. So he says um, it, it's right for him to be paid. Just look at um, He says, uh, verse 1, it's right for him to be paid because he is an, he is an apostle. He's been chosen by Jesus. He's been sent by Jesus. 
Uh, and then he goes, uh, verse 7, it's right for him to be paid because soldiers get paid. Uh, no one funds themselves in the army. It's right for him to be paid because uh, grape growers get to eat grapes. So it's right for Paul to benefit from his gospel work amongst the Corinthians. And it's right for him to get paid because farmers get to drink milk. Did you see that? Uh, farmers get to benefit from their handiwork. So Paul should get to benefit from his handiwork, this gospel work of people becoming Christians in this big city of Corinth. And the bit I love the most, the argument for him being paid, is, uh, is because, verse 9, that God is not into animal cruelty. It's the odd verse from Deuteronomy. Did you notice that? Uh, for, uh, verse 9, for it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Uh, that probably needs some explaining. Uh, you're thinking, uh, who is the most ox-like amongst the preaching team at Church by the Bridge? Um, the, 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 this, let me explain. Uh, an ox was used like a big pestle and mortar. You know those things you have? And uh, it was used to, to, to cart a big stone over the grain that was harvested from the field to to get rid of the outside bit and to turn into flour or something like that. That's as far as I know. And God is saying in Deuteronomy uh, that it is cruel to put a mouth guard over the ox and to stop them from having a little... little, snack on the grain on the floor that's what he's saying and Paul's saying that that uh, verse in Deuteronomy is not just about farming it's written for us particularly about gospel workers to deny gospel workers pay is like putting your mouth guard over your ox as you get it to, 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 to crush the grain so Paul says uh, Paul says uh, we must pay our people who preach the gospel But even with all that in mind, even with all of his right to be paid for preaching the gospel to them, Paul says he has given up that right so that they'll be saved. So verse 12, he says, however, we have not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. Verse 18, he says, we preach the gospel and offer it free of charge and not make full use of my authority in the gospel. Paul is preaching for free. And at this point, you're thinking, well, if Paul is preaching for free, why is Andy taking a wage? Are you thinking that right? And you're thinking, is Andy quite ox-like? Is he ox-like enough to give him a wage? Um, I want to say, I want to say that I am thankful for your generosity, for paying my rent and paying my food bills so that I can feed my kids, so that I don't have to work in advertising to, to fund what we do here. And trust me, the advertising world and the world is a lot better off without me in advertising. And um, I'm guessing at this point you're also thinking, oh, the preacher's going to hit me up for some more cash, give more money to church. Uh, Well, I need to say as an aside, and it is a side application, that if you are a Christian here tonight, uh, if you would call yourself a member of this congregation, then it is your responsibility to give money to fund the gospel, to to fund uh, the preaching of the gospel. It is my responsibility to fund uh, the preaching of the gospel. I give, uh, you give, we're all to give. And we don't do that because I tell you to do that. We do it because Jesus tells us. Uh, Did you see that verse 14? Paul says, the Lord has commanded 
that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. So if you're not giving, uh, give. If you're giving more money to fitness first than you are to the work of the gospel, then have a think. Um, That is a side application. It is on the command of Jesus that we are to do that. Uh, The big application, though, and what I want us to see from this first point, is the value that the Apostle Paul puts on the preaching of the gospel. That he thinks it's so important that the Corinthians become Christian and stay Christian that he is willing to give up his wage. He's willing to work through the night, putting up tents or whatever he did, uh, so that he wouldn't hinder the gospel, that he would get out of the way of the gospel. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I wonder whether we would give up our day job for something we're passionate about. I wonder whether you would do that. I don't think there are many things that we would do that for. But Paul is saying he has done that. And we should be prepared uh, to sacrifice our rights for the sake of the gospel, for the salvation of others. He says, uh, Jesus can't be your hobby. He's saying, Jesus is your life. He can't be your hobby. We can't have the gospel in our priority list somewhere between fitness first and the sailing club. He can't be a hobby. The gospel, uh, the salvation of souls, is just too important. That's what Paul is telling us. And it demands, us to, it demands from us to give up our basic rights. I've been mulling over this week uh, what the people who have taught me about Jesus have given up uh, in their lives. I think, of, I think of big careers, I think of the wealth, I think of the reputations given up by the people who have taught me Jesus. Paul Dale said that he gave up his right to be in a boy band to teach the gospel. <laughs> I was like, yeah, whatever. Um, I'm encouraged by that as I think over it. I'm encouraged the sacrifice that people have made for me, for little old Andy, uh, what they have given up. I'm encouraged by the rights and the stuff that you have given up for uh, the salvation of others, for the proclamation of the gospel. I know there are people here who have given up lots and lots and my wife reads this blog called My Ugly Couch. It's a Christian blog. And it's called My Ugly Couch because the writer has named it after her uh, ugly couch, which she says serves as a trophy for what she and her husband have given up for the proclamation of the gospel. Let me read from her blog. She says, I love my ugly couch. Uh, because it is a a reminder of our priorities. It means that we are beginning to value things of this world less and less and are seeking the things that touch the heart of God more and more. So let me ask you, uh, what are your trophies of uh, the gospel-centered life? What are the trophies that you see in your life that you have given up for the gospel. For the Apostle Paul, it was this whole Corinthian church, verse 18. He says that they are his prize, he, they are his trophy. Um, I once lived with a beautiful Christian family uh, um, for a few months while I was a student, and uh, the husband said to the wife, they said, he said, Oh dear, we really must get a new washing machine. That one's on, on the way out. And the wife said, uh, The new washing machine is coming round for lunch tomorrow. 
she was talking about the MTS worker that was coming around for lunch, and they'd sacrificed their new washing machine to support this MTS worker for college. It was beautiful to hear this. What are the gospel trophies in your life? I want to say thank you for giving up things, giving up your rights to make this gospel work happen. We are doing an incredibly uh, outrageous and earth-shattering thing here in Blues Point Road. It may seem like we're just a few mates hanging around in a dusty old book, but God is at work, and I want to thank you for giving up your rights to make that happen. Of course, we breathe the, the air of a city that says we shouldn't give up our rights. We don't need to give up our rights. We have the right to own our own house. We have the right uh, to make and uh, Achieve the best possible career and the time available to us on the earth. And of course, we live in the lucky country. This is my Australianism coming in here. We live in the lucky country, don't we? That says anyone can do anything and be anything. But Paul says that the gospel is worth giving up those rights for. I want to encourage you as you think about your gospel-centered life. Uh, and I know that money kind of resonates uh, uh, rather well for us. I want to think, don't think in dollar amounts as you think, what have I given up? Think in terms of ears hearing the gospel. Think of your washing machine going to Bible college. Uh, think of your uh, less flash holiday uh, being responsible for sucking people through the door of Blues Point Road. Let me encourage you to to pray that you would have a great passion for the gospel to be proclaimed in the world. Because that was uh, Paul's passion, wasn't it? And that's our next point, that we see Paul's passion in this chapter. Uh, Verses uh, 19 to 23. Paul tells them, doesn't he? He tells them what floats his boat. Have a look at verse 19. He says, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. Paul's passion is to see people one for Jesus. And it drives him into these bizarre places. I wonder whether you notice just the bizarre places and the people he is driven to because of his passion to win the lost. It drives him into these bizarre places and it causes him to to remove barriers so that he can reach uh, more people. So verse 19, he says... I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. He says, to the Jews I became like a Jew, to win Jews, to those under the law, like one under the law, to win those under the law. Verse 20. Verse 21, to those who are without that law, to win those without the law. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak in order to win the weak. Get get the message? Paul says that he will be anything to win anyone. And our passion, he's a passion for the lost, and our passion for the lost will drive us into some bizarre places, to bizarre people that God has placed in our life. And it will drive us to remove those weirdo Christian barriers that are up that stop people from hearing the gospel. 
you probably have heard of the, the great missionary Hudson Taylor. He was an expert in this, removing these cultural barriers so that people would hear the gospel. He uh, became in every possible way Chinese. He dressed like a Chinese person. He spoke like a Chinese person. He lived amongst the Chinese. So that how he looked and how he acted and how he spoke wasn't a barrier to the gospel. And we must be passionate like that. We must be passionate to do anything and go to anyone and do anything that prevents people from hearing the gospel. We have lots of weirdo Christianisms, don't we? Uh, We kind of hang out in our Christian cliques. We do weird Christian things. We sit in rows like this and we sing weird Christian guitar music. There is a bunch of stuff that we do as Christians. And Paul says, lift those barriers so that people can hear the gospel. The Queen was 90 this week. God bless her. Um, and I wanted to tell a Queen story because uh, she is awesome. Uh, she, was, she was once hosting a dinner party at the palace. And there was a, a chap there who'd never been to one of these posh soirees. And he got hold of the finger bowl and didn't know what to do with it. So he picked it up and started to drink it. Uh, you're meant to dip your fingers in it, if, uh, for those of you who aren't aware. Um, anyway, the Queen uh, spotted what was going on. Everyone else spotted it and said, oh, look at that pleb. Uh, what's he doing? And the Queen spotted it, realised what everyone was thinking, and so picked up her finger bowl full of uh, butter and bits of stuff floating on the top, picked up her finger bowl and drank it. And there was silence, a moment of pause, And then everyone else started drinking uh, their finger bowl. You see, the queen removed uh, the barrier. She gave up her right uh, to be posh. So not to be a barrier for this guest who she'd invited, who she wanted to honour. Well, I want to ask you, what are your finger bowls in your life? What are the things that you need to drop? What are the rights that you need to drop so that people uh, will hear the gospel? What are the barriers that we need to... Uh, get out of the way. We need to be asking that as a church. I put around a survey uh, on Friday night. I'd love you to fill it in. What are the barriers that we do here as a church that might stop our neighbours and our friends that we work with from hearing the gospel? Uh, And we need to think about that individually. We need to think about our language, our use of time, our resources. That will be barriers to stop people hearing about Jesus. It's probably uh, worth flagging uh, this point that we don't need to take on all of the habits uh, of that group of people that we're trying to reach. And Paul says that he became like a Jew. He didn't become Jewish again. We don't need to become an alcoholic uh, to reach alcoholics. We don't need to take up smoking to go and reach the smokers out in the office. But we do need to make a step towards them. When I worked in the office, I set myself the task of trying to share the gospel with the smokers. So I obviously didn't smoke, but I used to go out and have a smoko. Is that what they call it in Australia? Smoko? Smoko, mate. Um, and I'd go out and they say, oh, what are you doing, Andy? He said, I'm having a smoko. And they said, but you don't smoke. I said, I know, I'm just standing here coming for a chat. So I used to go out and, uh, and reach the lepers of the office who were banished outside. Um, I'll have a think about what are the barriers... Uh, that you can remove so that people, the people whose who's, uh, God has placed in your life can hear the gospel.
You don't need to take up smoking to reach the smokers in the office. You don't need to become a Muslim to reach uh, the Muslims, Muslim family in your block. But you might want to consider how uh, you might behave so not to be a barrier for them coming around for something to eat and a chat. You might want to work out how, it's, how culturally appropriate it is to talk to those people so that they might come eventually to hear the gospel. What are the, the barriers that you need to remove? I'll just give you a, a couple more examples. I, I read of a, a pastor's wife who worked in an area that wasn't very posh. She was an amazing cook. And uh, she discovered that everyone, uh, when they came round for lunch, when she'd invite the, the, the mums from the school round for lunch, that they were all quite intimidated by her cooking and stopped declining. So what she started to do uh, was just serve tin tomato soup and bread rolls so that there wasn't a barrier to her spending time with them and them hearing the gospel. I heard of a, a guy who moved into a housing commission block because he was trying to reach these people with the gospel and he didn't want to be seen as the posh pleb that always came down with his Bible. He moved in, uh, gave up his right to the house that he owned and moved into the housing commission block so that people would listen to him and hear the gospel. Now that is madness, isn't it? Tell any of your friends who you work with that aren't Christian about that and they will go, that is complete madness. Sydney says, do what you want. Don't worry about anyone else. But the gospel says, and Jesus says, be passionate about people's salvation. Do anything because the friends who God has put in our lives, well, they're going to hell. And Jesus offers heaven. They remain under God's wrath and Jesus offers forgiveness. And we should do anything for our friends to hear about that forgiveness. It will be costly. It will cost you money. It will cost you time. It will cost you your reputation. I'm sure those uh, builders in John Lang's construction company weren't saying, oh, he's a jolly nice chap. They would have said, oh, Bible basher, let's see what we can uh, get out of him this week. They would have given him lots of grief. And your friends will give you lots of grief behind your back as you step out for one who lives the gospel-centered life. It will be costly, but Paul says also that it will be worth it. It will be worth it. And that's our final point, uh, that in this passage, 1 Corinthians 9, we see Paul's prize. Uh, Paul says that the gospel-centered life uh, will be worth it, and he compares it to this uh, well, a whole suite of uh, athletic um, things. I'm not really into all of that kind of thing. Um, uh, verse 24, he says, Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race? But only one receives a prize. Run in such a way to win the prize. He says other runners receive a crown that will fade away. But we, we Christians, we who live the gospel-centered life, uh, we receive a crown that will never fade away. Verse 25. He's talking about what will happen at the end of time. The new creation. And the final picture of the new creation, when Jesus returns to restore our broken world, to raise our rotting bodies and creates a perfect world that we would enjoy for eternity. The image there in Revelation of that perfect world is of all the nations around the throne of Jesus worshipping the Lamb. 
of all the people on the planet, of people from every tribe, tongue and nation, uh, saying, Jesus, you are awesome and we know what you're up to now. Now there'll be people there on the last day who we don't know. Uh, There'll be people from, we pray from everyday English. Uh, We pray there will be people who God has put in our lives, week in, week out. We pray that that is the case. There'll be people that we don't know. But we pray that there will be people on the last day who will know the uh, unfading crown of glory. Let's pray that there will be people that we work near, old school friends, people who live in this street from Blues Point Road, there on the last day. And let's compete with that as our prize. Uh, that as our prize. Uh, now, if you've, um, we, we announced that next week we're going to be flyering our community. And if, as that announcement was made, you're thinking, oh, do I have to? Think about the picture of Revelation, the unfading crown of glory. Think about uh, the potential for the person who you hand that flyer to, whose post box you put that through, being there on the last day. That is the prize that Jesus is talking about. That is the prize that, uh, that Paul says is worth living for. It's very easy to be, uh, do you see the image of being uh, the boxer who punches the air? We all feel, I often feel like I'm a boxer punching the air. Am I really living this Christian life? Let's not be the boxers who punch the air. Let's be the people who hit the target day in, day out with the gospel-centered life of uh, putting the gospel first of paying the price, giving up our rights to the stuff of this world so that people would hear the gospel, of giving up our rights so that barriers would be removed from people hearing the gospel. And let's know that it's worth it as people hear the gospel, are saved from hell for the new creation and are round the throne on that last day. Jesus gives us eternity. Nothing can take that away from us. It doesn't matter whether we turn up next Sunday for flyers. Jesus gives us eternity and that is a prize worth running the race for. That is a prize being disciplined day in, day out in our prayer lives in the way that we go about entering the office. Jesus can't be a hobby. He makes a terrible hobby and if he is your hobby he will make you miserable. Live the gospel centred life. We may not be John Lang, we may not have millions in the bank. Some of us might have. We'd like to see some of that. Um, We may not have millions in the bank. We may not build a cathedral in our life. But I want to charge you not to be Stuart Sutcliffe. Anyone know who Stuart Sutcliffe is? I've spoken about him before. He's the fifth Beatle. He's the fifth Beatle who left the band to become an artist because he thought the band was going nowhere. Let's not be Stuart Sutcliffe. Let's not be those Christians who start the Christian life and pull back and make Jesus our hobby because we think this gospel-centered life is going nowhere. It is worth it. Jesus is worthy. And he gives us a life and promises a life that will be joy-filled and satisfying and completely worth it. Will you live that gospel-centered life, Paul says. Let me pray for us.